So, Mary, we're here on the first day of April, and it felt like Indeed. there were about 62 days in March this year, right? Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I think we've been working from home for, what, two weeks now? It felt a bit more like two months, I think. Yeah. How are you finding the, the working from home? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I've been f- found myself wondering about some of my colleagues' interior design choices in the backgrounds, right? <laughs> yeah. And when they've blurred their background, it's really, really intriguing. I, I'm just dying to know what's behind that. That is always intriguing. Yeah, I've seen some pretty good pictures in the background. Have you, have you seen any particularly good ones? Yeah, or a wall that was entirely a bookcase, which made me think I should, number one, read more, and number two, think about my interior design choices. The, the bookcase is a good one, actually. I actually put a tweet out a couple of weeks ago saying, is it too much of a humble brag to have a massive bookcase in the background when you're on calls? <laughs> And the, 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 the view from Twitter seemed to be it was a bit, a little bit too much. I think the best one I saw was a, as a lake in the background out of the window, which I thought was, was pretty good. Okay, for some being stuck at home with a lake. <laughs> quite, quite. Yeah. Anyway, so this week on the podcast, we have an extra special episode. I was at the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association conference in Edinburgh two weeks ago. Feels like it was about two years ago. Uh, and there I got the chance to interview the keynote speaker, Alison Schrager, who um, is a fascinating speaker on all things related to risk and uncertainty. So without further ado, my interview with Alison Schrager. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Great. Well, I'm here today up at the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association conference up in sunny Edinburgh and delighted to say that I'm joined by author, economist and keynote speaker, Alison Schrager. Alison, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And you've flown in today from the States, from New York, right? From New York, yeah. Um, And you were just telling me that you did your undergrad here in Edinburgh, right? I did. So I spent three years here, but I haven't been back in 20 years. This is my first time back, almost first time back in Scotland at all. No good reason for that because I love it here. So it's been really good to be back. Yeah. And you were telling me you got a little bit of a hike planned the next couple of days. Yeah, yeah. I'm going up to Sky tomorrow, get a weekend up there. Seems like a good place to hide from the world. Yeah, that sounds about right. I remember I was thinking how I graduated in 2000 and how when Y2K was going on, everyone thought that would ruin the world. And I remember just something about being in Scotland makes you feel so removed from everything. Yeah. I remember feeling like, well, maybe the world will end with Y2K, which sounds silly now, but at the time it was a legitimate worry. Yeah. And I remember being like, but I'll be okay because I'm here. It's like yeah. I'm on the edge of the earth. Yeah, there is a bit of that feeling there, isn't there? Yeah, no, that's right. Okay, well, the first question we always ask our guests, Alison, is tell us about one thing that we should know about you that we won't find on your resume. You won't find on my resume, huh? I play bridge, although that's not very interesting. That's good. Okay. That's a regularly weekly game sort of thing. It is. It's great. I do it in New York with a group of people ranging from ages 20 to 75, but most are scientists or writers. Right. And it's, it's quite an intellectual game, isn't it? There's a little, little risk and probabilities sort of. In, in it that. is. I'm not very good, mainly because I'm good with probabilities. So right. that allows me not to work very hard and I really need to work harder at it. Right. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, Alison is actually giving the keynote speech at the conference in round about just about an hour's time. So yeah. delighted that you're taking the time to join us, Alison. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what you're planning to talk about later in your, in your keynote address. Well, really talking about how to manage risk in this environment, right. which is obviously a lot of uncertainty right now, but also when hedging becomes so expensive. So in finance, you hedge 
risk by going more into low risk assets. Yeah. And it's just become so costly. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with that environment and how do you figure out what the right trade-offs are for you? Right. Okay, cool. And your book, which is called an economist walks into a brothel and other unexpected places to understand risk. I mean, I can't be the first person that sort of said that's kind of an interesting title. So this, it is, it especially, like some interesting especially for a book written by a retirement economist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some of the concepts that you talked about in there are trying to make, the way I read it, was trying to make the concept of risk a bit more accessible and trying to help people understand what is sort of meant by risk. Yeah, I think we often lose sight of the purpose of investing, which is ultimately risk management. It's to move money through time and hopefully have enough of what you need. And that's really a risk management problem rather than a beat at the market problem. Right. And I think a lot of people in industry and certainly outside of industry don't realize that's actually what you should be getting and what you should be paying for. Yeah. So I really wanted to do this book to sort of explain the basic concepts of risk management I mean, I would say basic is kind of undersells them because they're actually sophisticated if you understand them deeply to help people get understand them better and gain more accessibility and for experts to sort of see them in a new light, things they do every day and for people who have no exposure at all to learn about them at all. Yeah, I see a deal with risk a lot and I advise trustee boards on investment risk. And Mm -hmm. so something that people like me will often say, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, is saying, well, your risk is 150.5 to the 95th percent Mm -hmm. confidence level. Yeah. And I sort of realized over the years that's not often the most helpful thing Mm -hmm. for trustees or anyone really to hear. I mean, risk is such an abstract sort of concept, isn't it? And our efforts to pin it down are often a a little bit futile. Yeah, I don't know if there was well-known here, but for years I worked at a mutual fund company called Dimensional Fund Advisors. And I had a project that was very interesting to senior people. So I spent hours for a couple years with their investment policy committee, which consisted of me, Robert Merton and Jean Fama and Ken French, debating the parameters of my model. I think in the end, just I think having them in a room debating the future of interest rates was just fun for them. So I think that's why we met so frequently. But I mean, it really was for me where I learned a lot of this stuff because I was trained as a macroeconomist, not a financial economist. And you can imagine years with them totally transform you. I remember we had to put an assumption on my model, like the parameters, like mean return variance of standard stuff. And we went through this exercise where we had Gene and Ken's underlings create their own mutual funds from scratch and then going back to like the 1920s. And then they came out with, yeah, something that was like 4.98767. And (laughs) I remember Gene just looked at it and it was like five. Yeah. Because the problem with those decimal places, one, they're not meaningful. And two, they give you a false sense of precision when you really don't have it. I mean, I think the thing is about risk metrics, they're incredibly useful. I'm a big fan of them. But you're really always nailing jello to a wall. Yeah. Risk is always just, for me, what I think of risk, I think of risk as a definition is an estimate of uncertainty. Right. Uncertainty is unknowable. Risk is sort of like you trying to draw a map where you have complete chaos. And it's a very useful map. It's not a reason not to do it, although some people say so, but I think it's still incredibly valuable. But you also have to be humble with its limitations. Yeah, I think that's right. And so what sort of risk metrics have you found most and least useful when you've been doing that sort of work? It depends on the problem. I think one thing I found is the best risk management tool is choosing the right tool for the right job. Yeah. And sometimes a mean variance is the right tool for the right job. Sometimes you have to be more thoughtful of tail risk. It really depends what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose other things that I see used are things like scenario tests. You Mm -hmm. can put a particular scenario there. Often the issue with that, though, I find is, again, you can get a false sense of sort of security because you get very anchored to that one scenario, don't you? It doesn't necessarily tell you a lot. Yeah, I don't like scenario tests just because 
It's like the why the reason I don't like backtesting either, because I think the future is always going to be different than what you expect. I think yeah. that's the one certainty you have. And I mean, you should think through all the different scenarios you can, but you also have to be very aware that some things happen you're not going to expect. I mean, it doesn't mean not to do the scenario testing, but just said, just have some humility of how limited it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I often find that the issue with it is the, the so what at the end of it. So mm-hmm. you might do a scenario test and say, in this scenario, the portfolio is going to lose 40% of its value. Yeah. Then what? And I suppose it's then back to your point around saying, well, if the hedging mitigations around that are also very expensive, it's not really gotten you anywhere by saying that that's a risk you're running, right? Exactly. Or something I see a lot is certainly with bond investing is people use recent data. Well, bond prices yeah. have gone nothing but gone up for like the yeah. last couple of decades. And they seem to put on these way more overly rosy bond assumptions than they should because it's like, well, either they're going to stay the same with very low yields for the foreseeable future, which is feeling likely lately, but eventually prices are probably going to fall. And that should be the scenario you're more focused on. Yeah. Well, that is a good question. And that's one that's close to our hearts as advisors to pension schemes and things. And bonds have got harder and harder mm-hmm. to model, haven't they, as, yeah. as rates have got lower. But the issue I've found has often been that classic models might have the volatility sort of decreasing a bit as yields go mm-hmm. lower. But actually, the reality has not been, it's not been the case. I still like, no one believes this anymore, but I still believe a little bit in mean reversion with bonds. I mean, we okay. always, as economists, we always assumed that was true. All the classical bond pricing models yep. always assume mean reversion. But now it seems insane to say that. And I think there definitely has been a structural change that makes yields permanently lower, or at least lower for the first decades, maybe. But I think right now, I'm they're so low. And I'm not sure that will last, especially if we have one lasting impact of Corona could be more financial decoupling. Yeah. In which case you're going to have fewer buyers for a limited set of risk free bonds. So yields could go back up again in that case. Yeah. As you mentioned it, we're here today in the midst of a big kind of risk event. Yes. I mean, how would you interpret that, that the general risk that we're experiencing through the lens of the models and the sort of metrics that you look at? And well, when I look at it, I see uncertainty, not risk. And I think that's one of the right. reasons it's just so scary and why all the policies in most countries seem so haphazard and confusing and panic inducing is risk is what you can measure and you yeah. feel like you can get your arms around But we just know so little. I mean, partially because so few countries can do adequate testing. We don't have great data on anything about how long this is going to last, what the mortality rates are going to be, even really how infectious it is still. So I think all we have is fear and no real answers and policies in response. It's really hard to do proper cost-benefit analysis and weigh the trade-offs when you don't have good data. Yeah, and I suppose you can argue that risk is, I think that's the thing you're saying, risk is often what you don't see coming. Yeah. So it's quite hard to be really specific about it because it is just something that can sort of come out of left field. Yeah, something I kept saying, and I never make predictions that are correct, so this is why <laughs> I'm bringing it up. As I kept saying, people said, when's the recession coming? People were very edgy yeah. about that. In fact, I think that was supposed to be the theme of this conference. They were so sure there'd be a recession by right. now. And I kept thinking, well, you know, recessions, I mean, financial crisis is a little different. Recessions usually come from some exogenous shock you don't see coming. Yeah. And whether or not you have a recession versus just lower growth or whether or not you have a really bad recession is really about how resilient is an economy going into it. So it's futile to guess what's going to cause a recession and go through all those scenarios because who knows? But what you can do is you can look at corporate and household balance sheets. You can look at how responsive policy can be, and that can tell you how resilient we're going to be. You talked a little bit in the book about that classic idea of known unknowns, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, that's just 
stuck, hasn't it, as a phrase ever since it was sort of famously mm. used. But do you find it helpful? It can, be, it can be a bit blasé, can't it? People sort of throw it out there as like, oh, there's unknown unknowns. It's kind of obvious, but is it also helpful? It is. I think, as I said, you have to put it in context. One thing I don't like about the phrase is, I think, or the concept of black swans, is right. people want to throw out risk management we can do. Right. Uh, yeah. And I yeah, think that's, that's a, a mistake. Yeah, okay. I think like if something works yeah. 90% of the time, even yeah. 5% of the time, I think it's a tool worth using. You want to be humble with it and sort of still keep that little bit of flexibility so you can change your mind or if things happen you don't expect, you still have some room to maneuver. But I don't think that's an excuse to abandon risk management of the tools that the tried and true tools we do have already. And what other tools would you see out there alongside? We talked a little bit about sort of quantitative risk models, mm-hmm. but do you see a role for kind of I don't know, things like risk registers and other sort of things that are commonly used in a broader sense. There's two ways you can sort of reduce risk is hedging Mm. and insurance. Yeah. And I feel like no matter what we come up with, there are always some variant on one of those two things because the only two ways to reduce risk. Yeah. And we find fancy ways to dress them up. And sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes you have very sort of bespoke problems that require very tailored solutions. But again, you have to also with those sorts of solutions, be very careful about, is this the right solution to my problem? Do I have counterparty risk? All of these other things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I guess one issue I often find is if we focus our minds too much on quantitative risk measures, you can get quite tied up in by sort of behavioral loss aversion, mm-hmm. those sort of things. You can get very focused on name of the game being to reduce your risk as much mm-hmm. as possible. And you're saying investing is a risk management exercise. I guess it's, that's not the same as it being a risk reduction exercise because you don't want to reduce your risk. Nothing. Yeah. And I find like what people, most people say risk reduction, I think risk reduction are two different things. Yeah. Risk reduction, I find a lot of times in the financial industry is trying to get upside and reduce downside at the same time. And there's really yeah. no free lunch. I mean, that's the one thing we know is true in finance yeah. is the only way you really reduce risk is not to take risk yeah. or to take less risk. And we tend to get into trouble when we try to sort of have our cake and eat it too. Well, exactly. And I think, obviously, so many situations in investing where you see slightly fancy solutions maybe that maybe don't really outperform another situation where you just take less risk in the first place, right? And that's always got to be your counterfactual, if you like, for the stuff. Yeah, like a couple of months ago, I went to a large investment bank and the topic of the discussion was the end of 60-40, you know, right. this sort yeah. of oh, yeah. Yeah. portfolio everyone's talking about because yields are so low, the 60-40 split still makes sense. I'm not sure it ever made sense, but if yeah. you think it did make sense, like it still makes sense. The idea should be, if you believe 60-40 is the right allocation, is that you should be 60% risky, 40% low risk. Yeah. It's not complicated. But now they're like, well, because low risk is so expensive, this doesn't make sense. And that's a fair argument. You could say, all right, you should be 70-30 because you know you just can't afford to be in low risk assets anymore and life's tough. Learn how to live with more risk. But instead, they're like trying to juice the 40% and still calling it the 40% by putting right. in all these risky assets, you know, like REITs or commodities or junk bonds, maybe those have a place in people's portfolio these days, but those should still be considered risky assets. I felt like it troubled me that they were trying to argue that we found a way to juice low risk. And there's no way to juice low risk. Low risk is low risk. And either you can argue I'm going to take more risk or you're not. And that's that's the only sort of option you can do. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because a lot of people would say, well, you just got to accept low returns going forward. And that's what you're saying. Or accept that you're taking more risk to try and get yourself back to the same level of returns is really the the choice that a lot of investors are faced with. Yeah, pretty much. And then difficulty, I suppose, if you're thinking from the perspective of like an individual investor or something, they might be looking to try and outperform or at least keep pace mm. with inflation over a long period of time. And even doing that requires a decent amount of risk taking these days. Whereas it's, time was, you could do that in a Freddie was freeway. Yeah, I said like yields are negative now. Even yeah. in America, they are. Never thought we'd get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 
a decent amount of equity allocation needed to even try and keep pace with inflation, which, which I guess is a real is a real challenge and quite hard for people to explain to people, advisors to explain to individuals how much the world has changed in order to create that situation. It is because I think inherently we always want something for nothing. And yeah. it doesn't help that the financial industry often tries to sell people something for nothing. We see this a lot with our public pension plans in America too, where, oh, I have the solution that means that yeah. you can get more and I can take away your risk at the same time. And that's just never true. There's always that trade-off. Yeah, exactly. And people also get, you also get anchored, I suppose, don't you? And a lot of people who were, I don't know, working in the 90s, mm-hmm. let's say, or the early 2000s mm-hmm. or whatever, you remember where interest rates and things were. And mm-hmm. somehow, I think you always struggle to really get away from that, don't you, in your head? And you sort of always think that that should really still be the case. Or I'm finding talking to people, the stock market falling, they'd honestly, since the financial crisis, seem to forget that stock market falls, that there's a risk and risk premium. And this is unfortunately what it does. What other advice would you have then? So I think there were five key areas in your book, that mm-hmm. five sort of key takeaways you had. I mean, covered a couple of them. What other things, other pieces of advice would you have? Well, the main one is identify your risk properly. Right. I mean, I think we often misspecify our risk. And that's okay. usually the first thing where we go wrong. All these fancy tools we have can be very valuable, but usually they fail because they were hedging the wrong or ensuring the wrong risk problem to begin with. Okay, interesting. So give me an example of that. So you mean... It was focusing too much on like a one-year value drop or... Or so, say, take retirement. Yeah. DC retirement. Yeah. DB retirement, we always knew what the goal was, right? Yeah. It was making these right, benefits into right. the future. Okay. So yeah, you were in yeah. long-dated bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in DC, we've somehow decided that anyway, the goal is spending in the future. Yeah. Somehow, wealth preservation becomes the risk everyone's fixated with. Right. So everyone's right. in short-duration bonds. Right. So you have this duration mismatch we've exposed pretty much the whole population to. At least in the UK, is that true? In the US, we put everyone in T-bills as their risk-free asset. What you're saying is absolutely true, I think, mm-hmm. in understanding the problem to be solved in a DC pension or in a private wealth type management context is much more difficult than DB, where at least it's clear what you're but trying to do. But the problem's the same. Now individuals are solving the problem. Yeah. But they also have to generate yeah. income in retirement. It's just they have to do this on their own and they can't diversify amongst other people the way a company did. Yeah. And that's a problem. But I feel like the even bigger problem is somehow we've convinced them that the problem they're solving is wealth accumulation and wealth preservation and not future spending. Yeah, well, that's right. And I think you're alluding to the fact that there is this huge risk transfer, if you like, that's taken place generationally and that individuals are bearing all that risk now for their retirement. And I suppose the question is, do they know that really? Mm -hmm. And secondly, how on earth can we help them grapple with that as a choice? And it's just difficult. And it doesn't help that I feel like we're steering people the wrong way. Focus on wealth preservation, you mean? Exactly. I mean, it's hard enough to solve the income problem. Like defined benefit plans had access to all the best minds in the industry doing this and they struggled with it. And not only we put it on individuals, but we're giving them, sort of steering them in completely the wrong direction to begin with. Yeah. Okay. So get clear on your on the problem you're trying to solve from mm-hmm. a risk management perspective is a clear takeaway. And from a DC or a wealth perspective, you're saying that's focus on the income you want in retirement. Mm-hmm. What else have you got in terms of key tips? Well, to is a, I'm not much of a behavioralist, but I think there is value in understanding what your behavioral biases might be and right. learn how to yeah. translate risk problems into ways that feel a little bit more intuitive for you. Well, that sounds super interesting. I'd love to drill down on that a little bit because I think that's been a big piece that does get a little bit missed by the industry at large, especially when you mentioned some of your esteemed ex-colleagues who have clearly written the literally written the textbook on some of this stuff, which is now taught and things like mean variance Mm -hmm. and black skulls and and Mm -hmm. very much part of how the industry operates. But and as you say, they can be helpful, but putting it they're very far away from the behavioral sort of risk side and, and then not don't necessarily pay that much attention to how people sort of really react well, to practice. They, right? they do and they do. I mean, I think 
irrationality is a complicated concept. Like people yeah. can be <laughs> sort of have all these behavioral biases that Kahneman Tversky noticed in one situation, but not another. Yeah. And people yeah, who tend to take risks thing. repeatedly tend to act more like economically rational right. than people who are faced with a new risk. Or as people get older, they tend to act more economically rational. So a lot of it is just, it's not surprising that humans, the average person doesn't have any sense of what probability means. Yeah, and isn't, exactly. it didn't respond linearly to probabilities. I mean, we don't yeah. train people in probability, but we expect them to know it. There's a lot of evidence that thinking in terms of natural frequencies. Right. Yeah. Um, so a thousand people, out of a thousand people, 300 will get this thing is much better than the percentage. Yeah. We're even seeing this with Corona. You see people like throwing out percentage death rates and they're like, well, that sounds small. But when you really think of it natural frequencies, it sounds quite scary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So I don't buy that people are just were doomed to be these irrational beings who just need okay, to be tricked good. into things. I think we need to work harder at communicating what risk means to people in a way that's yeah. meaningful to them. Yeah, there's a more positive take. Well, and so in retirement space, you mean pounds and pence, I guess, or income in the future. Exactly. Inflation adjusted. I mean, is that... I yeah. I mean, I said we're... I wish there was more work on sort of ways things can be meaningful to people. Again, because we focus so much on wealth, people are always like, can you handle a 20% drop in the stock market? And people are like, yeah. I don't know. But yeah. if you really think about, all right, this would mean 500 pounds less a month in income, then I think that becomes more meaningful. Yeah, exactly. And I guess there are still challenges with that, right? Because obviously human longevity is a huge part of that whole equation mm -hmm. as well. And you start bringing that in and then yeah. it starts to get just quite complicated mm -hmm. to nail down those sort of figures. But I suppose it's a start to know, as you say, to know what you're trying to solve mm -hmm. and to get some metrics that people can actually sort of relate to a little bit more than a lot of the more abstract stuff that was tending to dominate the industry, right? Totally. Other tips and risk approaches that well, then I get into risk management. And the yeah. first thing you want to do is diversify to yeah. get sort of the best portfolio you can. So you don't take any more risk than you need to. And then from there, you want to either hedge or insure. Yeah. And okay. then from there, I think as well is that humility to know that you can only manage what you can imagine. Yeah. And there's a whatever it's going to take you down. It's always going to be something you never saw coming. Yeah. Is the point there that if you can prepare yourself for it, then at least sort of psychologically you're... Um, well, you want to be resilient because you can't really ever prepare. Right. Like, I mean, who, yeah. who saw the virus coming? I mean, yeah. I like people who are like a year ago, like we're going to have a recession because the yield curve's inverted. Oh. Well, like if we have a recession over the virus, that was not because the yield curve was inverted. No bond trader saw that coming. Yeah, exactly. So you sort of you know, psych yourself up that the certain losses are just going to occur and they're just part of... Well, you want to know sort of that thing. if something happens, you do not foresee that you have the flexibility to maneuver. I think you said it's about building resilience to anything that comes along. So you, whatever is going to be bad, you're never going to see coming. Yeah. Just a second ago, you mentioned hedging and insurance. So we could, we could just dwell on those a little bit more. So just maybe expand on what you think mean by both of those points. I've been watching CNBC a lot. And right. I maintain that all these finance experts, I said they work in industry, I don't, are confusing diversification and hedging. Okay. So for Go me, on. diversification is finding the efficient portfolio. Yeah. Finding the portfolio where if you take any more risk, you can take more risk without getting more return. So you have two portfolios, same return, one is more risk than the other, one's inefficient. And the way you can gain efficiency is through diversification. And honestly, that's pretty trivial. I don't even take as a financial expert, buy an index fund. It's a great yeah. way to diversify. There's no magic in diversifying better than that. But where financial expertise becomes valuable and important is hedging. So hedging is de-risking. So if you had a probability distribution, what it is, you're giving up upside in exchange yep. for reducing downside risk. Right. Changing that distribution around a little bit. Yeah. So that would be, say, having, say, equity index funds right. and also investing in bonds of whatever duration is appropriate for you. Right. So that would be a hedge. 
Okay. I'm noticing on TV they keep calling that diversifying, and it's mm. not technically right. Okay, that's interesting. And then obviously insurance, so that's a bit more obvious what you mean there. But you, Yeah, you that's mean, when you pay someone to take away your downside. Right, yeah, paying someone a premium, and in a certain scenario, they... Yeah, and you they get to keep the upside, which is nice. After yes, you, of course, after exactly, you, yeah. the premium wasn't too high. Yeah, as opposed to hedging where you've just taken away both sides of that distribution. Yeah, you're cutting off both tails, yeah. as opposed to insurance is you get rid of the downside and you get to keep the upside. Right. So is your point that in any given situation, you just need to understand which of those you sort of got available to you and what the costs are of each of them? And what's appropriate for your problem. Right. And so the retirement problem being one of firstly diversification and then probably a little bit of hedging. And then probably a little bit of insurance. Right. Such as? An annuity. Right. Okay. Or longevity, a long-term care. Right. There's not much of a long-term care insurance market in America. I don't know if there's been one here, but I mean, that's a market that doesn't really exist. Well, as I said, there's a lot of scope for insurance, reverse mortgages. I mean, there are insurance products that can help in retirement too. Yeah. That's super interesting. So we got identify the right problem, get the right risk metrics, think about the three approaches, diversification, hedging, insurance. You should use all of them. And you should use all of them. Mm -hmm. We're appropriate. And you do believe sort of positively in, in behavior being potentially a, a good thing and the fact that we're not all doomed so just to be irrational and make bad decisions. No, we just have to explain it to people in the right way. Right. And do, do you see do you see particular people that are particularly good at that, you would say, or firms that are good versus less good? Good at explaining stuff to yeah. people? No. Yeah. I don't think we put a, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is I don't feel like there's been enough effort into really making tools that are accessible to the average person. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think mean, that's a great point. I mean, there's obviously a few other sort of famous really famous books on, on a similar line I mean sort of Taleb I suppose mm-hmm. popularised some of those sort of concepts although maybe you take issue with the black mm-hmm. swan kind of thing um, I don't know if you're familiar with Gert Gigerenza oh, yeah he's, I he's, love his stuff yeah he's, he's great I think he's very good at this I mean he doesn't yeah. really do much in finance but no. he does a lot in the medical profession medical, yeah exactly although I hear he's working with Bank of England on some sort of risk metrics now. right I mean, he's really pioneered how to present risk metrics in ways that are meaningful to people. Yeah, yeah. That's right. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes. But I think one of, it was a while ago that I read it, but I think one of his key points is back to what you're saying about natural frequencies. Mm-hmm. So rather than say 15% of people are going to get ill in this way, yeah. you just give a number and eat something as simple as that is just really transformational to let people understand it. It is. Like I just did a podcast when I was in New York where I was like, 2% of people sounds like nothing. Yeah. I suppose you have 200 Facebook friends, which yeah. is probably even low. That'd be four people, which just feels like a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it does. it does. It does sort of completely change it. And those decisions do matter. Okay. So we may as well start wrapping up there, okay. Alison. Thank you so much for your time. A couple more questions before we let you go and do your big speech. Where can people find you, find your stuff, find your books and those sort of things? Well, I have a website where I keep all this information. And I'm also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. So I think they also keep track of everything I'm doing. Okay. And that's alisonschrager.com, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you have a recommendation for our listeners, perhaps a book or a podcast or a series that you found particularly good recently? Well, I love Against the Gods, the Peter Bernstein book on risk. I mean, that's uh, been such an inspiration for me. I haven't read that, but oh, people, it's a classic, isn't it? People do it talk is. about it a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really just beautifully written and really gets into the whole history of risk management. For podcasts, I really love The Indicator. It's part of Planet Money. Okay. Oh, you, no. I don't know if you get Planet Money here. Well, I guess you get everything you on podcasts. Get it, you get it on podcasts, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I've not come across that one. But yet. they have a daily okay. version called The Indicator, which I love. Okay. All right, cool. And finally then, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? That it's about risk management, not beating the market. Okay. People think they would need to beat the market. And your, yeah, your thesis is that it's more of a risk management problem. Mm-hmm. And you believe that needs to be communicated better to people, that individuals need to understand that point. Yeah, because I think we all know beating the market consistently is futile. 
Yeah, so it makes CNBC more exciting, though. I guess that's the issue, right? It does. The, the ins and outs of beating versus losing something each day. Is Especially the with algorithms, you're not going to do it. It's just, but risk management is a very human problem, and it can never be done entirely by a machine. I guess risk management can be a bit dry, though, can't it? Sometimes, I suppose that's is that the issue. The reason it's not, it doesn't receive the profile that maybe it needs to. Well, people want to pay for more money. Yeah. People don't want to pay to not lose money. Yeah. I mean, exactly. they do. I guess yeah. insurance is, disproves that idea, but I think generally. This is the problem with retirement savings. The market's gotten so focused on wealth accumulation. If you think the goal is wealth accumulation, you want someone who can promise you to give you more wealth rather than if you're like, I'm actually thinking about how to have stable income in retirement. That's a risk management problem. Got it. So risk management, not beating the market. Yeah. Well, Alison, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We'll let you go now and do your me. big keynote in half an hour. So Mary, what did you make of that? Really fascinating interview. We can link to it in the show notes. The keynote speech itself, which I think, what was it, 15 minutes later? Really fascinating as well. So I think some really interesting points to bring out. I know you mentioned, you spoke to Alison about the sort of five key takeaways in her book. I guess I had a few slightly different takeaways or phrased a bit differently, which I guess I'll go through. One, and we've come back to this time and time again, is jargon. This world being completely riddled with jargon, and she highlights it in your interview. And sort of just being careful to not be sucked in, I suppose, by something that sounds quite clever, but you don't know what's below the surface. And another thing, I mean, you said that she's fascinating speaking about all things risk. And what really struck me was, number one, different ways of thinking about risk. And actually, the way that you measure risk might vary depending on how you should be thinking about risk. So value at risk isn't necessarily the right metric for everyone, but for some people, that is the right way to be measuring risk. And actually thinking about it in the context of your objectives, what would actually throw you off course? What would actually mean you would take a different course of action? I think that's a really interesting point because we all get quite tied to certain ways of measuring risk and thinking about risk. I found it interesting, actually, that she, I quite like using scenario testing with my clients because I think it's quite a good way of taking risk from theory to sort of more practical outcomes. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. And I thought it was interesting that she sort of said, well, not completely convinced on scenario testing. And I get her point. Yeah, she wasn't a lover, is she? Yeah. Yeah, I get her point that you can recreate historical market dynamics and you can test your portfolio against that. But the next market change might not be anything like any of the previous ones. I think it's helpful to look at risk in a number of different ways, to be honest. And that is was one of the takeaways from what she was saying, I think, right? That you should sort of throw all the tools you have at it and then try and go a little bit further as well in terms of thinking about these unknown unknowns. Yeah. And that takes me actually really nicely to the other sort of key thing that struck me was the way that Alison described uncertainty versus risk and the fact that people think of it as the same thing. And actually, I think she described it as risk is something you can measure and you can therefore mitigate risk because you know what you've measured and you know how to reduce it. Whereas uncertainty is the known unknowns or the unknown unknowns. And actually, you could go on forever trying to come up with the things that you haven't yet expected. But actually, just having the resilience, I think, was her key point there, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a great point. And I wasn't really getting it, as you might have heard during the interview. I didn't really get what she was saying there. But listening to it back, and Penny sort of finally dropped. And I guess what she means is, like in situations like this, if you're an investor, just making sure you have enough cash to tide you through, you're not going to have to liquidate things that you haven't got leverage in the wrong places that you're going to have to find sort of cash to cover. And those sort of things is just what makes you resilient to the things that you just have no chance of predicting from a risk model. So it's a great way of thinking about it, isn't it? That, And I love the way that she was quite balanced about it because some people would say, look, there are unknown unknowns, so therefore all risk management is rubbish sort of thing. Whereas she was kind of saying, well, no, let's not throw out what we can do. It's useful up to a point. And then you've got to recognize that for those other things, the only thing you can do is try and keep yourself resilient. So it's a really nice way of thinking about it, I thought. 
Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I guess, we're sitting here today in, well, at the start of April, we've had extremely turbulent markets in the last couple of weeks. Effectively, we've had a VAR event. We talk about those and they all sound very theoretical. We've had it. So any market movements that happen after this is what is the theoretical bit, I suppose, that wasn't necessarily expected. And certainly the schemes I've got, the pension schemes that I work with that hold higher cash balances are doing a bit better at the moment because of everything else being so volatile. But equally, decisions about hedging long liability cash flows have also been extremely valuable with turbulent markets, which I guess takes me actually to my final, I guess, observation on Alison's interview to do with risk reduction. So I think she said, low risk is low risk. You can't say I'm going to have a low risk portfolio, but the bit that I hold in higher risk assets, I'm going to make really high octane. That isn't a low risk portfolio. You still have a high risk portfolio. Maybe you've got more risk management in there than otherwise. But I thought that was an interesting point. And also just saying there are only two ways of reducing risk. You can hedge and you can insure. And if you hedge, you are giving up some upside to protect your downside, whatever your downside scenario is. And with insurance, you obviously you pay a premium, but you might expect to still be exposed to some of that upside. So I thought that was just really nice sort of seeing it in black and white like that. Yeah, was quite clear to me, I suppose. Yeah, it's really encapsulated the dilemma that sort of individual investors have at the moment in that the kind of classic 60-40 equities government bonds portfolio that's modelled so great historically really doesn't work so well when yields are just so low. And I suppose her point was, don't kid yourself that you can just sort of swap those things for other things and it's still the same. You're left with the choice between more risk or, or lower returns and that's it really. Yeah, yeah. But Dan, I was intrigued. You never actually asked Alison the history to the title of her book. So the book, which we'll link to in the show notes, is An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, I think. So what's that all about? Yeah, I was kicking myself for not asking her that. Obviously, she told the story just after that in the keynote. That's basically a story about hedging. So she visited a legal brothel in Nevada, apparently, and she sort of just explored the way that these sort of transactions were taking place. And basically, a very large part of the money that was paid in these situations went to the brothel itself. And so the workers gave up a significant proportion of of the income, potentially, I think it was 50% or something. And her point was they were happy to do that because it was a, a hedge. There was a lot of obviously safety provided by the fact that it was legalized. There was a lot of infrastructure around them to make it just better and much less chance of bad things happening, which is what can happen, these things on the black market or whatever. So that, that was a slightly provocative example, maybe of a, of a sort of a hedging situation that, that, that she had found and that she'd looked at a little bit. And it's a good way to kick off a keynote. It certainly got people's attention. I think. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And I suppose it's funny, isn't it? Because certainly from my perspective, when I've thought about risk management, I think, okay, who can we learn from? Who does risk management really well? And you think, well, insurance companies, they've got to think about risk all the time. So let's take inspiration from them. But I didn't really expect our industry to be taking inspiration from a brothel. I guess the other one that she mentioned again in her in her keynote speech was surfers. So again, inspiration, surfers leading the way on risk management. It's a, not one I expected. That was a great story. She's got a great line in her book, which is something like, big wave surfers are just like actuaries with a tan. <laughs> which was pretty good. But she had this great slide in the keynote where it was, she basically said, look, here's a room full of very tan fit dudes in flip-flops and shorts sitting in a windowless hotel room looking at PowerPoint slides on risk management. And it actually was a big wave risk management conference. But there were some real points there, which I thought were good takeaways. So a lot of big wave surfing is apparently about risk management. And one example of that is that 
the waves travel in sets of four or five waves at a time. And although the first wave is often the nicest one, but it's also by far the most risky because if you wipe out, you've then got the other ones that are just going to come on top of you and give you quite a high chance that you might drown or something. So big wave surfers will rarely go for the first one in the set. And after that, they're weighing up the risk versus how nice the waves are. Just sort of an interesting one. The really good example was jet skis. So she basically said jet skis are like financial derivatives in a way. And I think it was in the 80s or something when the jet ski was sort of taking off. There was this famous Hawaiian lifeguard or something that realized he could use the new model, the Yamaha jet ski, to rescue people quite effectively because he could stand up on it was the big difference, I think, something like that. So he fixed up a boogie board to the back of it and started using it to be a lifeguard for the big wave surfers, which really obviously helped them a lot because it meant they could be rescued a lot better. But then the jet ski had a flip side. It meant that people started to realize you could also tow each other into much bigger waves with jet skis. (laughs) And so not only was it helping them by managing their risk, unfortunately, it was also acting the other way by massively multiplying the risk and that you had them towing into these waves that were three or four times bigger than what they could have could have naturally paddled into. And I mean, what a great, what a great analogy for other things like swaps, for example, I suppose, or um, futures and those sort of things. And that use one way, it's a great tool for risk management, use a different way. It's just multiplying your risk. Massively. Yeah, yeah. There's the risk. It's not just risk management, it's that you act irresponsibly because you think you have this thing to fall back on. It's a sort of moral hazard almost as well, isn't it? That you think you've got this thing that by label is risk mitigating, but think carefully about what unintended exposures you're achieving i suppose yeah yeah i think she was saying that as well that there was that worry to begin with with the jet skis that the surfers would take more risk because they assumed they could always be rescued but it obviously wasn't always the case it's not completely foolproof yeah yeah so what does that mean i guess in terms of takeaways for the listeners know what risks you're taking know what risks you're willing to take yeah, and measure those relative to your objectives, I guess, right? So she, she made that great point that often you can get sort of fooled into thinking that investing is all about a wealth preservation game, whereas actually it's about a future income generation game. And so trying to get away from the mindset of worrying excessively about wealth preservation, if that's not your aim, that was a really good takeaway. Yeah, I agree. Another key takeaway, I guess, that she mentions or you went through in the interview, behavioral biases. We talked about that in, on last week's podcast. The fact that this whole industry is people making decisions. So be aware that it's people, be aware you are a person and try and combat some of those inherent biases in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then I guess she came on to the three sort of big tools you've got to deploy, which I think was diversification, hedging and insurance. First of all, not getting those three things mixed up, but sort of using them all, using them all appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the final thing was something like use your imagination, which is back to the kind of, there are things that we don't expect. So let's try and be resilient to those things. Yeah, that was a nice takeaway. I like that. Yeah. So know your risks and be imaginative. So that's probably it for this week. Just wanted to sort of trail what we're doing next week. We're going to try something a bit different. We thought we'd do a book club. and We're going to focus for the first book club on the big short. So read the book, watch the film. We're going to be sharing our thoughts next week. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.